Students, I'm so glad you're back. Man, it's, it's, uh, it's wonderful to have you back. I don't even mind sitting still on Texas Avenue and not moving or waiting for my chips and guacamole at Mad Taco. It's okay. Just to, to have you back in the room and the energy, we just we love it. And Grace Bible Church loves having you here. Uh, give you a little preview this semester. We're going to be looking at select passages from the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. Uh, so we did Genesis a few years ago. We're not going to be in Genesis, but uh, several sermons from Exodus and actually a few from Leviticus. Probably never even heard a sermon from Leviticus in your life, so that'll be fun. And then uh, a little bit of Numbers, Deuteronomy. So if you want to get ahead this week, you want to read the book of Exodus, that'll get you there. But this morning, uh, we're actually going to be talking about the church. And uh, if you've been around Grace Bible Church for a while, you know we've, we talk about the church uh, quite a bit, and we've, we've talked about the meaning and the nature of the church. Or if you grew up in Sunday school, you remember this, right? Remember when you, you'd link your fingers together? Go ahead and do it. Just go ahead and put your fingers together, right? You, and, and like this, you put them together. Remember the, the little limerick, right? Here's the church, right? And here's the steeple. Open the door, and you see all the people, right? It's, it's a really fun way to learn about the church. The only problem is it's absolute and complete heresy. <laughs> right? This is how it should go, right? Remember? Here's a building. It might have a steeple. Open the doors and see the church. And then watch the church go out and make disciples of all nations, right? And I know it's a little bit more cumbersome, but it has the advantage that it's not heresy. It's actually true, right? This is just a building. This is just a place. It's just a, a resource. The, the church gathers together and worships together, and we are the church. Right? We, we are the church. We're the church of Jesus Christ, and we're, we're living for and anticipating that day. When there will be others with us from every tribe and tongue and people and nation surrounding the throne and saying, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive blessing and honor and glory and power. We live for that day and we long for that day. And as we wait for that day, we want to be the best church we can possibly be. So this morning, that's what I want to talk about. How, How can we be the best church we can possibly be? And we're going to look at the church in Antioch, Acts chapter 11. And I want us to look at four qualities in particular that can help us become the church that we want to be, the best church we can possibly be. And the first is this. We're a church that welcomes change. We're a church that welcomes change. I want you to read with me in Acts chapter 11. If you're not already there, turn to Acts chapter 11. And let's begin reading in verse 19. So, so then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews alone. And there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch, and they began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. And the news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. So remember, here's the setting. Uh, Stephen was the first martyr. He was stoned to death in Jerusalem. And as a result of his stoning... Persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And so most of the, the, the Jews who were from Jerusalem stayed in Jerusalem, but those who, were, who had gathered because of uh, Pentecost to celebrate that feast, uh, they were from, many of those Jews were from other nations. They were, right, they were part of the diaspora, the dispersion. And so when the persecution arose, they went home, right? They fled Jerusalem. They went back to their countries. And as they went back, they began to talk about Jesus, but were told they only talked to Jews. Why? Because they still hadn't understood what the Great Commission was all about. Right? You read the book of Acts, one of the things you have to understand is, is Acts is history. And in uh, the, the course of history, right, the church was born on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit was poured out. But the church didn't really understand who it was or what its mission was. 
In fact, if you read Acts chapter 1, remember Jesus was with the disciples for 40 days. And he's explaining to them about the kingdom of God. And it gets toward the end of the 40 days. And the disciples look at Jesus and they say, so, let us get this straight. Is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he's like, ah, <laughs> man, you just don't get it, right? Stop worrying about that. Instead, what I want you to do is go and make disciples among all nations. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. That should be your concern. Right? But they, they, just, they just couldn't understand it. They thought that the kingdom was for the Jews, instead of from the Jews, for the nations. Right? And so if you read the book of Acts, it's, it's the church kind of slowly figuring out who it is and why it's around. Right? So there were a few Gentiles that kind of trickled in. in this, uh, after this persecution, Philip went down to Samaria, and he starts preaching the gospel to Samaritans. Remember, Samaritans were, were half-breeds. Right? They were part Jewish and part from other nations that had been imported by the Assyrians years ago. And so they just had the Pentateuch and they only used the Pentateuch and the Jews really kind of despised them. Philip preached to them and Samaritans started trusting Christ. And the church in Jerusalem's like, oh, that's different. <laughs> we weren't really expecting that. Should they have been expecting that? Yeah. Because Jesus said, make disciples of all nations, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. But they didn't get it, right? And then a few more trickled in. Philip then went and he preached to one Ethiopian. That Ethiopian trusted Christ. And then a really strange thing happened. Uh, Peter had a vision. And in his vision, there were all these unclean animals that Peter had never eaten in his whole life. And they were lowered down in front of Peter. And uh, an angel said to Peter, arise, kill them and eat them. (laughs) Peter's like, no way. Right? I've never broken kosher. I've never eaten unclean animals. That, that would be sin. I won't do it. Vision goes up. Vision comes down again. Arise. Kill and eat, Peter. No way. Won't do it. Goes up again. Comes down again. Arise. Kill and eat. Peter says, no, no. It's not going to happen. And then Peter wakes up from the dream. And uh, people come to him. And they say, um, we were sent to you. By the Spirit of God, an angel spoke to us through the Spirit. And And we're Romans, and God is saying, come and speak to us the gospel. And Peter's like, ooh, okay, maybe this vision had some other significance, right? So he goes down to their household, and in a really good transition into the gospel message, he says, you know, I really shouldn't walk into your house, because if I do, it makes me an unclean sinner. I was like, wow, it's an awkward moment. But, you know, it doesn't really like win them over immediately. But they're so eager to hear the gospel, they welcome Peter in. Peter starts preaching to them about Jesus. And before Peter can finish his sermon, the Spirit of God falls on them, proving to Peter this is the work of God. The enemies are becoming friends through Jesus, right? The Romans are now becoming friends through Jesus. When Peter goes back to Jerusalem, he has to defend himself. He has to defend himself in front of the church that he went to Romans. Why? Because the church still just doesn't really get it. But then after the persecution breaks out and uh, people begin to scatter and they go and they take the gospel just to the Jews, there are a few very entrepreneurial evangelists and they begin to proclaim the gospel, not just to the Jews, but they begin to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. Notice what it says again in verse 21. It says, the hand of the Lord was with them And a large number who believed turned to the Lord. 
Right. So this isn't just a trickle. It's not just a few Samaritans or a single Ethiopian or one household of Romans. Now all of a sudden, there's an outbreak, outbreak of the gospel among Gentiles. And the church, which had been exclusively Jewish and then letting in a few people in Antioch, is primarily non-Jews. It's Gentiles. And this is a change. Right? And I, I think Antioch actually was the perfect place for this to occur. Because Antioch was a special city, right? It was founded 300 BC by Seleucus, one of Alexander's generals. And so it was a Greek city, but it was on the edge of the Syrian desert. So it was, a, it was east, west meets west, right there, right? Greek culture, right on the Syrian desert. And it was a cosmopolitan city. Right? It had people from all kinds of different nations. Third largest city in the Roman Empire at that point in time, only behind Rome and Alexandria. 500,000 residents And they were not just Greek, but they were also Jews, and there were Arabs, and there were Africans, and there were Indians, and there were Persians, and there were Chinese. This was an incredibly rich, cosmopolitan city. And so when they begin to preach the gospel, there are literally men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation hearing the gospel in the city, and the church changes in its complexion. It's not just Jewish. And this is rattling It's rattling for the church in Jerusalem again. And so they send someone from Jerusalem to see what's going on. Verse 21, let's read it again. It says, The hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Then the news reached the the ears of the church at Jerusalem, so they sent off Barnabas to Antioch. Now, this is a real win because they didn't, in this moment, send a critic. Right? They sent a cheerleader. Listen to this description of Barnabas. It says, now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, right? So it's not really his name, it's his nickname. What's your nickname? Son of encouragement. You son of encouragement, man. <laughs> if he's known by one thing, what is it? He, he, he says, he walks, he goes in Antioch, he goes, awesome, way to go. This is amazing. Right? They don't send a critic They send an encourager. And what happens? Wow, the church just, it explodes. It explodes and it grows. But you know, change is is difficult. Change can be frightening. But if you don't change, you can't grow. This made the leadership in Jerusalem nervous. Every time the gospel actually had broken out among non-Jews, they said, we better go check it out. We better go check it out. We better go check it out. Because it was change. And change can be frightening. But you can't grow if you don't change, right? Growth, by definition, is change. As the saying goes, a rut is just a grave with the ends kicked out. If you're not willing to change, you can't grow. Growth requires change, and change is frightening. So my challenge to you this morning is this. Do you actually want to grow this semester? Do you want to end this semester different than you began? If so, then things will have to change in your life. And you know what? That's going to be frightening at some level. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, This happened years ago uh, when the railroads first came to the United States. And it made some people uncomfortable because they hadn't seen it before. And so President Andrew Jackson, Jackson, he was president at the time, seventh president of the U.S., he got a letter. 
on January 31st, 1829. It read like this. As you may know, Mr. President, railroad, quote-unquote, carriages, are pulled at the enormous speed of 15 miles per hour by engines, which in addition to endangering life and limb of passengers, roar and snort their way through the countryside, setting fire to crops, scaring the livestock, and worst of all, frightening women and children. The Almighty, right, you got to invoke God in this, right? The Almighty certainly never intended that people should travel at such breakneck speed. (laughs) Written by Martin Van Buren, who was governor of the state of New York at that point in time and would be the next president of the United States, right? Super progressive thinker was Martin Van Buren, right? Change is frightening. But as the Greek philosopher said, Heraclitus, there's nothing permanent except change. And if you try to resist it, then you're just embracing a slow and boring death. And some of us were born old. And we need to learn to love change. Because there is no growth without change. And the church has to embrace it. And the church has to be willing to say, look, if we're going to be a church that has enduring and lasting impact on this world, if we're going to be the best church we can possibly be, the first thing that we have to do is we have to welcome change. Second, uh, we have to resist change. You're like, wait, which is it? Do we welcome change or we, do we resist change? Yes. Right? Both. We welcome change in the areas of things that really need to be changed, but we resist change in things that should be held closely and guarded. And wisdom is knowing the difference between the two. Right? So let me make a distinction for you here. Message versus methods and functions versus forms. The message that we have never changes. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ lived 33 years on this earth. At the end of his life, he was betrayed by Judas to the Jewish leadership. The Romans put him on a cross and he died. But his death was not for his own crimes. He was an innocent man. He died to pay the penalty of our sins. And every single one of us have sinned. We, we failed. We don't measure up to the absolute perfection of God. That's what sin is. We miss that mark. And as a result, we're born separated from God. God calls that death, right? Our spirit is separated from the spirit of God. But the moment that we believe that Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, our spirit is reunited to God. That's called regeneration. We're born again. And we now possess eternal life. The debt of sins is removed forever. And we belong to God. We're adopted into his family. We're his children. We are not just regenerated. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. We belong to God. We are in his family. That's the simple gospel message. And all that you have to do is believe. And not believe just generically that Jesus died for the sins of the world, but that Jesus died for you. That's the gospel message. It absolutely never changes. But the way in which we communicate it to each generation changes, right? God wrote truth to Moses on a stone tablet. And Moses turned around and he began to write on parchment. And we write in books. And then we put the gospel message out through the radio and through the internet. You can even tweet it now, right? You can do anything with the gospel message. As long as you don't distort the message, you can use any method that's available, right? The methods change constantly. And as a church, we need to really be wise in in making use of the methods that communicate to our generation, but never touching the message. There are are timeless functions of the church. And we'll talk more about this in just a minute. But uh, what does the church do? Well, we, we evangelize and we exhort one another. We encourage, we instruct, we worship, right? Those functions of the church 
never change. But the forms through which we do those timeless practices, they change all the time. Worship is a great illustration because forms of worship are constantly changing. There's some of you who grew up uh, singing hymns, and that's all you ever sang because there was a hymn book in the back of the pew, and you didn't buy new hymn books every week, right? Once it was in the hymn book, it was in the hymn book, and that's what you sang. You didn't sing anything else, right? And then there's some of you who've grown up in a generation where you're singing new songs constantly. Like, right, all, you, you go to Passion every year, and each year at Passion, you get introduced to 12 new songs, and those get added to your hymn book, right? All those brand new songs, and I remember uh, the first time I heard a gospel rap. It was awesome. I was in seminary chapel. And one of my classmates was a rapper from Detroit. And he stood up and he began to rap the gospel. And the best thing about it was watching the old profs bend over, trying to keep the guy. They, they, you know, they're just trying to keep with him. But what was amazing is they loved it because it was the timeless gospel message in a new cultural form. Right? That's, that's what we do, church. And all that we're doing really is we're following the example of God. Because what God does for us is he puts his truth into forms that we can understand. That's what language is all about, right? It's God putting timeless truth into words that we can understand. So interestingly, if you look at the law itself, and we'll spend some time on this uh, in the next few weeks, but the law was in the form of a Hittite sovereign vassal treaty. It was a culturally relevant form. Why did God choose that form? Because his people could understand it. They could understand the idea of a king and his people. And so God puts himself in the place of the king. Israel is his people. It's a sovereign vassal treaty that was introduced by the Hittites. The form, it it doesn't matter. Does it work? Yes. So God adopts it. Many of the Psalms, you you will discover, actually, uh, were, were in the same form as Canaanite songs to Baal. And so some of the Psalms, actually, what's happened is the name Baal, or Baal, which means Lord, is taken out, and Yahweh is inserted because Baal really isn't in charge of the weather. He doesn't camp out on a mountain. In fact, God is. God's the one who casts the lightning bolt and sends the storms and brings the crop and brings fertility to the land, right? But it was a culturally relevant form, so it was used. And what is God's most vivid illustration of putting his message into a form we can understand? The incarnation. The word became flesh. The timeless message of God through the Son of God took on human flesh and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled among us in a form that we could understand so that we could believe. So church, our job is to distinguish between the two. Is is this the timeless message or is it a method that will help us communicate better? Is it a timeless function of the church or is it a form? That can change. And if you look historically at the church, what's happened is some churches have said uh, the message is not actually that critical. What's important is that we keep doing these functions of serving and doing good, and they've abandoned the timeless message and they lose their impact on the culture because it is the gospel that changes lives. For us evangelicals, often what we do is we cling to the methods and we cling to the forms and think that those are sacred and we lose our relevance to the culture and our power to impact the culture through the gospel. People won't listen to the gospel message because we're not putting it in a culturally relevant form. And so we have to learn to be flexible. That is right. We, we embrace change, but we also resist change. We cling to the things that shouldn't be changed, but the other things we move, right? And we change and we become great communicators to our culture. 
So what does this look like in the church of Antioch? Look in Acts chapter 11 and verse... Let's start in verse 23. It says, And when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them, all of them, with a resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So, uh, why did Barnabas leave and go and look for Saul? Because he knew that Saul was the one that the Spirit of God had appointed as the apostle to the Gentiles. And for the last probably seven to ten years, Saul, who became later called Paul, had been out evangelizing Gentiles. He was the greatest Gentile evangelist, and he was the greatest teacher that the church had known to that point in time. And so Barnabas realized, you know, if this church is really going to become a spiritually multiplying church, then we need to lay a solid foundation of doctrine. So he goes out and he searches and he searches because he's not exactly sure where Paul is and he doesn't have his cell phone on. And so he can't find Paul. Literally, Paul is just in a region, but he searches and searches. He brings him back. And so for a year, Paul laid the foundation of doctrine for the church. Now, I don't know if you guys have been following at all the, uh, the construction of the Creekside campus, but it's just taking forever, right? I mean, it took forever just to get the foundation laid because last spring, right, we just had rain after rain after rain, and, and our builders like, you know, we've never even seen rain like this. And finally, the rain stopped, and then they had to prepare the ground, right? And I live pretty close by, so I just, I go out there all the time, and it's just like, man, are you doing anything? You're just, you're just moving dirt around, and then they're digging trenches, and then they're drilling holes, and finally, they laid a foundation, several weeks ago, and now the building's starting to pop, right? And it's taking shape. But once it's built, no one will go back and say, oh, that's a beautiful foundation, right? They just kind of forget about it. But if it's not laid well, what happens? All the walls begin to crack and the roof begins to leak. So for a year, Saul taught, right? He taught. He laid a foundation of timeless truth and timeless practices of the church. So what are those timeless practices? I want to give you uh, just a few of the most important. The first is evangelism. Read again in verse 21. It says, The hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Verse 24. For Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. What do they do? Well, they, they went into homes and they went into the marketplace and they just talked about Jesus. Church, we want to grow, but we want to grow not just with people who come from other churches and get frustrated with their old church or whatever, or they move into town and they're already believers. We, we want to grow because people are hearing the gospel for the very first time and baby believers land at our doorstep and we begin to help them become disciples. Right? That's what we want to do. And so I want to let you know, uh, if you are new to Grace, uh, if you come here on a Sunday morning, every Sunday morning, no matter what passage I'm working from, I'm going to make sure that the gospel is presented. Because I don't know all of you personally. Right? So uh, if you are a believer and um, you're having a hard time getting to the gospel with a friend, bring your friend and they will hear the gospel here on Sunday morning. Right? Or if you're a believer and uh, you hear me start to get into the gospel and your mind starts to go, I, I've I got that one figured out, I've already made that decision, please don't in that moment. In that moment, this is what I want you to do. I want you to pray for all the people around you, because you probably don't know all of them, and pray that their hearts would be receptive to the Spirit in this moment. 
Or think about your friends and family who don't know Jesus. So in that moment, you go, yeah, I already know that and I've already believed, but this is my moment to to join with the Spirit of God in praying for my friends and family and the people around me to trust in Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's a spiritual transaction. The Spirit of God has to break in. It's not just an intellectual transaction. And church, this is why we're here. All of these other functions that we'll talk about uh, in just a moment, all these other practices... Some of those we won't even need to do when we're in eternity, right? And certainly uh, evangelism will be irrelevant because everyone believes, right? So what do we do now, church? Well, we share the gospel, right? We get to the gospel. Second, exhortation. Look at chapter 11, verse 23. It says, when Barnabas arrived, he witnessed the grace of God and he rejoiced and he began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord, Why did he encourage them to remain true to the Lord? Because they would be persecuted. By believing in Jesus, they were beginning to cut against the grain of their own culture. And probably the culture of some of their families and friends. And they would suffer persecution. And if you look at the history of the church, in almost all places and all times, it's been a, a persecuted minority. Now, we happen to live... Uh, in a place where there are a lot of believers. And if you're new on campus as a student, you're going to discover it's a huge Christian community. And so in that respect, maybe there's a little less persecution. But if you quickly identify with Jesus Christ, you know what? You will be persecuted at some level. In a, in a biology class or at your job, there will, be, there will be rejection and persecution. And what do you need? Well, you need community. Right? Community so that you have encouragement to remain resolute for the Lord. We're now calling our home church groups, now we're calling them community groups for this reason. Philippians chapter 1, it talks about koinonia or community or fellowship in the gospel. That's community in the gospel. And that's what we want our community to be about, right? Pursuing the gospel together. Second practice that we need, exhortation, encouragement of one another because persecution will break out. Third is multiplication, verse 25. It says, Barnabas left for Tarsus to look for Saul. Why didn't he just stay, right? I mean, Barnabas is the first multicultural megachurch pastor. I mean, he's got it going. He's got it going. Why didn't he just say, okay, now this is mine? Because he wanted it to grow. And he realized somebody else needs to step in to, to really help this thing become better and stronger. And so he finds Saul and he steps back. And he lets Saul become the primary leader, and he steps back. And as a result of him finding his place in his role and putting Saul in his place in his role, this church just becomes like this, this disciple-making factory, right? I mean, they're just, they're just cranking out spiritual leaders and spiritual multipliers for the kingdom. Church, that's one of our, our timeless practices. We multiply spiritually, right? What is the mission of the church? Well, we, we say it like this. We help people find and follow Jesus. That is just evangelism and discipleship. Right? We love the Lord with God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we love our neighbors as ourselves. And we make disciples of all nations. Right? Those are the biblical descriptions or imperatives. What is that simply? It's just evangelism and discipleship. You were called to be a disciple maker. And it may be you say, well, I've never actually shared my faith. Maybe that's, maybe that's a change that, that could happen in your life. Kind of scary, isn't it? Maybe you say, I've never actually discipled anyone. I've never invested my life in someone else. But 
maybe this is your semester, say, okay, Lord, make me into a disciple maker because that's the normal Christian life. Let me be a spiritual multiplier. Let me influence people. I want you to listen to, this is Amy Carmichael's uh, description of a disciple maker, right? A leader in the spiritual community. Remember, uh, Amy Carmichael was a, a missionary in India for 53 years, never took a furlough, which I don't necessarily recommend, but, you know, she, she was super tough. Anyway, she said this, Be the first wherever there is a sacrifice to be made, a self-denial to be practiced, or an impetus to be given. What is, what is a spiritual leader or influencer? It's one who just takes initiative. Right? Courageously just takes initiative. Is there a sacrifice to be made? Let me be first there. Is there an impetus to be given? Right? Is there a space I can step into to help influence somebody toward Jesus? Lord, let me be courageous. Remember, even the Apostle Paul, when he asked the churches to pray for him, he asked for one thing. He said, let there be an open door, and when that door opens, let me not be afraid. Even Paul asked the churches to pray that he would have courage to remain resolute and keep practicing evangelism, exhortation, multiplication, instruction. Read with me again, verse 26. It says, when Barnabas had found Saul, he brought him to Antioch, and for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Uh, can you imagine having uh, Paul as your pastor for a year? <laughs> I mean, no, you can't. So that's all right. I mean, but you know, if, if you heard Paul was preaching down the street, I, I'd say, man, go. For an entire year. And what did Paul teach them in an entire year? I wonder, what would you teach someone if I said, um, John Sue, there's somebody I want you to disciple. You got one year. What would you teach them? Brian Aaron, you got one year to disciple someone. What would you teach them? So throughout this semester, um, we're going we're gonna to be offering just some, some resources and some training opportunities. And we're going to um, finish service at 11 o'clock and ask you to run out and get your lunch, come back, and we're just going to talk about uh, disciple-making. And we're going to give you some tools for how you can courageously turn conversations to the gospel, how you could follow up with somebody who doesn't know how to feed themselves, how you can make disciples and be involved in that process. So you'd have a plan. If after church someone trusted the Lord and I said, hey, I need you to get this person grounded in the faith. I need you to teach this person how to feed themselves and have a vision for spiritual multiplication because that's the normal Christian life. Could you do that? Okay. If not, I want you to begin to plan on staying after some Sundays and stepping into that space with us and getting trained to become a disciple maker. Right? Fifth one is transformation. Let's read again verse 26. When Barnabas found Paul, he brought him to Antioch. For an entire year, they met with the church, taught considerable numbers. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. That's interesting. This is the first time and place they're called Christians. Why were they called Christians? Because they had so obviously identified their lives with Jesus Christ. They were different. Just five miles down the road is a little city called Daphne, and it was a center for pagan worship and all the immorality that goes around it, right? So uh, Antioch was, was an immoral city in its worship. And now these people begin to follow Christ. And the most important attribute about them that, that the community can say is they're Christians, right? Their lives were different. They were transformed. So why do we come together on a Sunday and open the word and I begin to teach? It's not so that you can gather more data 
about God. It's not just for information. It's for transformation. So that we would leave here genuinely different people. More like Jesus. So, that, so when people look at us, they go, okay, there's something different. What is it? And we would say Christ. Sixth practice is, is worship. Uh, church, we worship. So we come in here and ultimately the, these moments are not for us. Ultimately, these moments are for the Lord. Right? So sometimes we say, ah, I don't know that I got much out of that. I don't know that that's even the right question. What did God receive from you in this moment? Did you have a moment where you confessed sin to him and you were, you were uh, reconciled again? Did you, did you have a moment where you praised him and adored him, that he's powerful, that he created all things, that, that, that he created beauty and intelligence and wisdom? Did you, did you praise him? Did you honor him? Did you thank him that he gave his son Jesus? In other words, did you declare through your words and your actions and your thoughts that God is worthy? Right? That's why we come. So, so and we're worshiping, and as we worship, what happens is God gets access to our own hearts, and what does he do? He transforms us. He changes us. He changes our affections. He changes our attitudes. He changes our speech. He changes our behavior. And as we're transformed, then we are salt and light in a broken and fallen world so that others can join us in worship. That's why we do what we do. And so I want to encourage you, particularly students who are are new to A&M, and you're going to step into class for the first day tomorrow, don't wait a single day to identify with Jesus Christ. Right, don't, don't, don't put it off so that people wonder. Step onto campus. Step into your, your dorm room. Step into your, your apartment complex. The clubs you join. The intramurals you get into. Everything. And immediately make it clear that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Right? Take the opportunity that you have to proclaim Jesus in every relationship that God is about to give you on this campus. Now, it's not just for freshmen, but it may be that you're a sophomore, a junior, a senior, and you've never really stood out for Jesus. If somebody looked at you, would they say, obviously a Christian, obviously a follower of Christ, right? Well, now this is your moment. Right? This is your moment. Or uh, those of you adults who are living in this community, do your neighbors know that you follow Jesus, that you belong to Jesus? That, and that may sound scary to absolutely every one of us. We need courage. We need courage. We need the Spirit of God to give us courage so that we be so that we live as the church the best that we can possibly be. Right? So what do we do? Well, we uh, we embrace the things that um, should not change. We change with the things that have to change so we can communicate to the culture. But here's a third characteristic. We overflow with generosity to the people around us. Read with me verse 27. It says, now at this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and he began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren in Judea. This they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul. So uh, in the reign of Claudius, 41 to 54 AD, there were rolling famines. The rolling famine kind of hit in Judea, 45 to 48 A.D. So we can actually date when this event occurred in a, kind of in a three-year window. Um, but what's, what's uh, really to be noted is that the Christians in Jerusalem were starving, and it wasn't just because of the famine. It's because they were cut off from any help. Right? So when the famine rolled in, normally what families would do is families would take care of each other, right? But the Christians were cut off from their families. 
But Jews from all over the Roman Empire were sending resources back, but they would send the resources to the temple to be distributed to the Jews. But since the Christians had identified with Jesus Christ, they were no longer welcome in the temple, so they couldn't get any aid from their family, they couldn't get any aid from their temple. So they were literally completely cut off. They became the poorest of the poor and the lowest on the social ladder. And so this church, this brand new baby church, it's only been in existence about one year. They're not wealthy. They're also in the midst of the Roman Empire where famines have been rolling around, but they collect an offering because they feel this duty spiritually, right, to send back to the home church from which they were born. And they give. Right? They're generous. Church, that should be one of the greatest qualities of us as Christians because th- this just reflects God's grace. Grace means that, that God gives and he gives and he gives and he gives to us. Right? When we don't deserve it, sometimes we don't even ask for it. God initiates and he pursues us. And I will admit, sometimes I don't want to be generous. I don't feel generous. And it's because I forget that everything that I have uh, is actually owned by God, not by me. Right? And I have to step back and realize, you know, God gave me my body. He gave me my health. He gave me my, my mind. He gave me my home. He gave me my family. He gave me the wealth that I've saved. Everything that I have is actually his, and I'm just a steward. And I forget that sometimes. I have to remember And then I have to remember that anything that I invest in people coming to know Jesus and growing in Jesus is an eternal investment that's got a return on investment that just transcends time. And I have to remember those things. Remember, this is a fundamental quality of being a follower of Christ. He gave, expecting nothing in return. He just gave. He gave and he gave and he gave. He gave to the utmost. He gave his own life. And so for us to be the best church we can be, we we have to become a generous church. Winston Churchill once said, we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. I love that quote. Fourth quality, we pursue a greater vision. Read with me chapter 12 and verse 25. Acts 12, verse 25. It says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, right? They took the the offering from Antioch to Jerusalem, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. And there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them, and they sent them away. Now, I don't know if you caught this, but this was a a church that was... um, Rich in human resources. Let me, let me describe to you. This is their teaching team, right? You had Barnabas, who was a Jew. He was actually a Levite, who was from Cyprus. Right? So he was raised in a Gentile community. Simon was a, a sub-Saharan African. Lucius was a North African. Manian was probably uh, an Idumean or an Edomite. He, he was raised with Herod, the Herod who had put uh, John the Baptist to the de- to death, uh, and then Saul, right? Who was a Jew who was actually trained in Jerusalem, but he was raised in a Gentile city. And apparently, he's not mentioned here. But Luke was traveling with him. He was a Gentile doctor, right? So they had this, they had this incredible teaching team. And when the Spirit of God spoke, what did they do? They gave away the core of their team, right? They sent away the greatest theologian and teacher that had ever existed, and they sent away the guy who made everybody feel good about themselves, right? And they release that resource. Why? Because they believe that the Great Commission applied to them. This is the first church that got it. 
Right? This is the first church that realized that they were to be a sending church. William Temple, the churchman from a previous generation, said this. The church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. Isn't that good? Why does the church exist? We exist for those who are not here this morning. right? We exist for those who, who haven't found Jesus yet. We exist for others. That's why we're generous and that's why we give. And I will confess to you that I, I am a bit of a hoarder. Uh, I don't know where it came from, but there's, there are things I just kind of hoard. If you go in my office, you're going to see lots of books. And I've had people walk in and go, oh, wow, you know, uh, have you read all those? I go, no, but they're mine, right? <laughs> or, that one you've read, are you going to read it again? Well, maybe not, but you can't have it, right? I mean, I kind of I hoard. And when I was little, um, some of you will remember this, there were passbook for your savings account, right? And so I'd, I'd go with my mom and I'd put money in the bank and then they'd run your passbook through a dot matrix printer to go and it would update and show how much money you had. And once that money was in, man, I, I, I needed the number to go up, not down, right? So I would keep, I just hold on to my money. And when my sister and I would go uh, Halloween trick-or-treating, right, we'd, we'd collect huge amounts and we'd come back and we'd begin to sort and I would put them all, all my candy in categories and my sister and my dad would sit down and eat her candy. And like, they just eat, just eat all of her candy. So within a couple of days, her candy's all gone. But I would take it and I would put a piece in my lunch, right, each day. And by the end of the year, when Halloween rolled back around, I would still have candy. <laughs> it was dangerous, like, to give you these insights into my soul. But, um, you know, there's something in me. I just want to hold on to things. And, and sometimes uh, that's true of the church. Church gets resources and they want to... They want to hold on to it. Phillips Brooks was a a British preacher, and he was once asked, he said, how would you bring revival to a dead church? And he said, I would take up a missionary offering. And if the church is dead, we'd pass a plate and remember why we're here. The church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. God has blessed our church and made our church incredibly generous. Uh, in case you came in late and you missed Zach's announcement, we had a big party Friday night, and then we had a big giveaway on Saturday, and we got to serve uh, almost 400 students. And I, I love this moment in the life of our church because it's just another time for us to give, expecting nothing in return. And to give to meet a really practical, tangible need uh, of students who are coming in and to make them feel welcomed uh, that we want them here. And so students from 34 countries came and give, gave, and we gave to them. And I just want to say, Grace Bible Church, way to go. This, this is a very, very generous church, and we do this every single year, and we have for like 25 years. And every time, uh, what happens is, if, if you want to come help next year because you missed it, man, please come. If you're a student, come back early and be a part of this. Uh, the, the gym across the street will be entirely filled with household goods And the college auditorium will be entirely filled with furniture. It's amazing to see. And it's just because God's given us a vision to be a generous and giving church. So the question is this, though. What is is the greater vision that God has called us to? I want you to read with me again, chapter 13, verse 2. It says, While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, 
They went down to Seleucia. From there, they sailed on to Cyprus. Uh, the observation that I make from, from those few verses is this. The, the leadership team in Antioch, they weren't actually all that great at leadership, but what they were great at was listening. So what's happening in this moment is that they're fasting and they're praying and they're listening and they're saying, Lord, what would you have us do? And the Lord says very clearly, because they've humbled themselves and been good followers, he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to send. I want you to send Saul and Barnabas to plant the church where there is no church. I want you to multiply the church. So, What's the vision we're pursuing? Um, if you've been around for a while, you're, uh, for a year, you're familiar with where we're going next. If you're new to Grace, you're just exploring and trying to figure out if you want to be a part of us, our church. Let me, let me tell you where we're going as a church. Uh, a few years ago, our elders were, were praying and asking, Lord, what's next? It felt like the Lord laid on our heart this verse. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All right. That's inevitable. Because that's the will of God. And that's the mission of the church. To be involved in helping more men and women bow before Jesus and worship him. So the question for us then was this. How do we more effectively effectively multiply the church? So let me give you a quick quick rundown of of where we're going as a church. Just so you know uh, what it means to be a part of Grace Bible Church. 1965... um, we started this church. It was originally in Bryan, and it's moved to a few different locations. Uh, it landed here in the, the 70s, and it continued to grow. Um, we were able to buy this property in the 90s, and it continued, the church continued to grow. Um, and at one point in time, I don't know, it's probably, again, 25-ish years ago, started a ministry to Mandarin-speaking people in the community, particularly uh, professors, postdocs, grad students, um, and then a, a few years ago, we felt like the Lord was saying, hey, this, this needs to become a church. They need their own pastor. They need their own elder board. And so uh, our Mandarin ministry uh, became, in a sense, one of our campuses. They met across the street uh, a couple of years ago. They felt like God was calling them to merge with another Chinese church here in town. And so uh, the College Station Chinese Church and Grace Bible Church Mandarin became College Station Chinese Bible Church. And they have their own staff and they have their own elder board. There was a ministry that God enabled us to do about 10 years ago. This Anderson campus was full, and we felt like God was calling us to reach more deeply into the community. And so uh, he put in front of us the Southwood campus. That's uh, right across the street from Consol High School, if you've never been there. That was 10 years ago, and um, Anderson became full, and Southwood became full. And so four years ago, felt like God was calling us to uh, plant again. And so we launched the Creekside campus, and we did it on the south end of town because that's where so much of the growth in College Station is happening. Right? And so uh, this is what Southwood looks like uh, today. Um, this is a picture from this week. It's close to my home. And so I drive out to the Creekside campus uh, at least three times a week. And I get out of my Jeep and I walk and I pray that from this place, the Creekside campus would reach its neighbors. And from this place, we'd reach the nations. Right? This is a high growth area. That's why we landed on that end of, of town. But there are other ends, parts of town uh, that don't have really clear um, gospel witness. And so uh, tonight we're actually voting on a property in Bryan Midtown, which interestingly, again, if you've been around for a while, you know, it's literally, literally right across the street from our original Grace Bible Church. Um, it's a St. Michael's Academy and, and church. Um, 60 to 70% Hispanic people in the community. It's a new opportunity, a new demographic. Um, 
This is what it looks like. That's the chapel on the left, and then that's the pearl right there on the lower right. That's a gym with a tartan floor. It's amazing. And I dream, I dream about you know three-on-three tournaments in the community and sharing the gospel there. I'm like, oh, awesome. This is amazing, right? And we'll have age categories that are appropriate for all who want to play, right? So let me encourage you to come tonight, right? If you're a member, uh, please, please, please come. Uh, if you're not a member and you just want to hear more about what's happening at the church, uh, please, please come. Uh, it's just our members who vote, but if you show up and you're not a member and you happen to be handed a ballot, vote yes. Right? Just kidding. That's unconstitutional. Okay, let's bring it. Let me, let me, bring, let me bring this down to what does it mean for us as a church? Um, for us to broaden our impact, we need to multiply churches that multiply churches. And churches that multiply are churches that are packed with disciple makers, right? That's your calling. That's your calling. That's why, that's why God brought you to himself. It's not just so that you'd worship him, but so that you'd love him so much that you want others to know as well. So as you're walking in, you got a little card. And I want to encourage you to fill this out. Right? Front, front side says... Um, Praying for my three people in one place and then praying for my friends, three people in one place. Um, I, I want to encourage you. We've done this a few times before. I've actually got my, my original one here in the, the back of my Bible. And I've added, actually, it's, it's now up to ten that I'm, that I'm praying for um, and that I'm actively seeking opportunities to share the gospel with. Uh, but let me encourage you to fill that out. Maybe there's a people group or a place you want to pray for. And then get, sit with a friend and say, who are your three people? Let me write them down so I can play, pray for your three and you can pray for my three. And when we get together, we actually have biblical community because we're pursuing the gospel together. Let's do this, right? Let's do this, church. This is how the church grows, right? This is how the church grows. How we apply this personally is this. We say, God, give me, a, give me a, your vision, a greater vision for my life. And that, that is to be a disciple maker, as a student, or as a dad, or as a mom, or as an employee, or as a boss, or as an educator, let me be a disciple maker. Let me embrace that. And Lord, let me think about all of the resources that are yours, that you've entrusted to me, that I can give, that I can share. Let me be that kind of generous person. Why? As William Temple said, the church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. We don't live just for ourselves. We live so that Jesus Christ is honored by everything that we say and do and feel and so that others through our lives transformed and our speech are brought into relationship with him. Let's pray. Father, I pray this week that you would open doors. That you'd open doors for conversations about the gospel. That you'd open doors for opportunities to help someone else learn to feed themselves and grow spiritually. And I pray that as you open those doors, as Paul said, Lord, give us courage, give us boldness in the gospel. Let us not shrink back. But Father, let us be people who are willing to let you change us, that we, that we have courage to change, and at the same time cling tenaciously to the gospel which is unchanging because it is living, it's active, it's powerful, it is transformative. Father, I pray that you give us a fresh vision for each of our lives this week. In Christ's name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week going out and being the church. We'll see you next week.